um, we are starting module two, session one, and we're going to do session one in two parts. One of the things I have loved about uh, doing Bible Training Institute on Sunday mornings, like we used to do it uh, a couple of evenings a month, um, but I can extend things out as long as I want because I can just carry it on. And I don't want to cram this into just one week because the theology of worship is one of the most undertaught things in the Church of Jesus Christ. And I want to spend some time on this. So we'll start today and then go tomorrow, or tomorrow, if you want to be here, I guess you can, uh, then next week as well. I've been at church Friday, Saturday, and now Sunday, so um, uh, I'm just living here at this point. So uh, the guys will get a slide up on the theology of worship here in a moment. In the meantime, we're going to pray, and then we're going to do a little brainstorming, okay? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you right now thanking you so much for the fact that we may gather not as a right, not as something that is owed to us, but we may gather because the blood of Jesus Christ has opened the doors of the throne room of heaven that we might come before you, that we might gather as the people of God, no longer as rebels against your holiness, but as those who have been saved by the grace of Christ, those who have been washed by his blood, made to have the imputed righteousness of Christ such that we might speak freely to you, we might sing freely to you, we might honor you, we might give you praise that you would receive because they come from, because of your grace, the clean lips of those who have been saved by Christ. Lord, as we look at the theology of worship this week and next, I pray that you would enliven our hearts to understand not what our culture says about worship and certainly not what American evangelicalism says about worship, but what the Bible says about worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's brainstorm for just a minute. And I want you to, um, for a moment, you can count on one hand the number of times you'll ever hear me say this. I want you to put your Bibles aside for a moment and use instead as your source for information your personal experience in churches. How many of you have ever attended a church other than Grace Bible Church? All right, we're a wealth of information. Um, Wow, we're like a refugee camp, I guess. If all you knew about worship comes from your experience in churches, good, bad, indifferent, you're not sure, just throw out some sentences, not, not long paragraphs, some sentences about what you would say is worship. What would you say? Let's start over here. Just throw something out. Music, Music is worship. Okay. What else? Putting hands in the air is worship. We've talked about that. Yeah. Say that again. Reading the word. That that is worship. Absolutely. I'm glad you've had that experience. What else? What is worship? Say it again. Being entertained. That's part of being worship. Giving. That is, that is part of worship. Anything else? Emotional high. Emotional high. Ding, 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 ding. And Darla? Yeah, uh, uh, evangelizing. Yeah, tell, telling, telling of our faith. Generally speaking, American evangelicalism connects worship with what? Emotion and music. That's our connection. 
I, Darren and I are both a little sticky about this. Um, we try really hard not to say the phrase, let's have a time of worship and then the word of God will be preached. What does that say? That says that preaching is not worship. We also, of course, have Romans 12, 1, uh, that 1 and 2 that tells us that our entire lives are meant to be a sacrifice of what? Of worship. And so our conception of worship has been based very much on, and one of you said, um, an entertainment model. And that has been the case um, not just for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, that's been the case for centuries. Um, Martin Luther wrote against an entertainment model of worship. And he talked about high worship. Um, what is high worship? High worship is the idea that we worship centered on God, not centered on man. And for example, one of you, uh, uh, Russell brought out the idea of raising hands. There's no, there's no biblical admonition. We don't have a sniper in the back. If your hand goes up, you know, you're going to get it. That, that's not it at all. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But can you answer the question, why? If your hand goes up, can you answer the question, why? From the Bible. Oh, well, uh, 1 Timothy 2 says lifting holy hands. We already talked about that when I preached through 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, that is not the idea of physically your hands going in the air. That is the idea of cleanliness, purity, humility, and need. You, you could easily say lifting empty hands. That I have a need because the context is prayer. If you did a study, and I just read another article on this this week, if you did a study of all the times in the Old Testament that the idea of lifting hands and worship are put together, you know how many times lifting hands is a connotation of joy and happiness? Once. All the other times it's a connotation of lamentation and concern and sadness and sorrow and grief and need. So it if you want to lift your hands, that's fine. But know why from Scripture. I went to an event once that was a, a Christian event. And uh, lots of people from lots of different churches. And the band started playing. And you know I'm a musician. I love good music. And they had a great big chord. Burn, and I love that. I, I, I love electric guitar. Big chord. And it starts off. Hundreds of people. Boosh, hands go up. Not one of them knew why. I can tell you why. It's because the music started. And it was a conditioned response. It's the same way you walk through the door and my dog's uh, tail starts wagging. It's just a response. So we have so many misconceptions about worship that we have to go back to Scripture um, because the irony is, is that the American Evangelical Church understands worship so little and it's literally the most important thing we do. So I want to take some time on this. I have um, a short version of a long presentation that I'll do here over the next couple of weeks. Um, and I want to just get you thinking about this because I think this will change the way you think about coming to church. I think it will change the way you think about gathering together. <clears throat> I guarantee you that the churches uh, around the world that have determined to stay open even when the government says stay closed have, have, they have a better theology of worship. They're, they're, they're not bound to man, they're bound to God. And so theology is important. So just thinking about worship here, 
One author writes this, and you'll get these slides online. Um, He says, this is a guy named Nichols. He says, worship is the supreme and only indispensable activity of the Christian church. It alone will endure, like the love for God which it expresses into heaven when all other activities of the church will have passed away. When you think about that, uh, we will worship, everything else will be done. How many people will you lead to Christ in heaven? None. How many times will you need to tell a lost person the gospel? None. How many times will you need to pray for the salvation of children? None. So many things that we do now are rooted in the fact that we live in a sinful world. And so worship is the indispensable activity. Wouldn't it be nice to know what we're doing before you get to heaven? I I want to. Alan Ross, one of my favorite writers on worship, he says this, For worship to be as glorious as it should be, for it to lift people out of their mundane cares and fill them with adoration and praise, for it to be the life-changing and life-defining experience it was designed to be, it must be inspired by a vision so great and so glorious that what we call worship will be transformed from a routine gathering into a transcendent meeting with the living God. Those are big ideas. Those are big, lofty thoughts. There's no more activity that's important to the individuals of the, of the body. No more activity that's important in our relationship to Christ, to the corporate gathering of the church, than worship. This is what we do. This is the center of everything. Worship encompasses the whole of our lives. It includes going to a, an intentional group gathering that we often call going to church, Well, we're not really going to church. We're gathering as the church, but we understand what that means. Even in well-meaning local church gatherings, though, worship presented to the Lord is not always based in the theology of worship. And as some of you have alluded to already, it's, it's often not understood to be anything beyond singing. And it's tied so heavily to emotion that we now begin to, and this is the huge failing of American evangelicalism, we now begin to associate music worship with an energizing of your emotion to get you stirred up. Now, there is an element of that that's true. But what should be stirring you up? It should be truth. Truth is what stirs you up. And so now you have, you, you have music used not as a means to proclaim truth, but as a means to manipulate the masses. What do I mean by this? There, there is a church in this town that has the name something Bible Church, and they openly use the strategy of playing 45 minutes of music, some of it very loud, very intense, very uh, repetitive over and over again, so that when you finally get to the baloney that is presented from the pulpit, you'll believe anything. Because you've worked up your emotion. Look, have you ever been suckered by a really good sales pitch? Man, I just bought a bridge in the Panama Canal. It was 10 bucks. Because you got your emotion worked up. When your emotion is worked up, you tend to believe things without thinking. Now, we, are not, we don't want to be one of those uh, emotionless churches. We don't, we're not preaching against emotion. What we are saying, though, is that emotion is only rightly a response to that which is true. A response to theology. If you can't um, think about the cross, 
and not have a little emotion, then I, I, I don't understand that. But when you see a church filled with people singing a song that is heretical and tears streaming down their face and true, genuine hearts that are soft and want to, want to please God and just feeling something so wonderful, what do we do with that? I'm actually going to preach on that entire subject next week. I'm going to preach on the danger of sentiment because you know what happens the next time that song comes up? You think about how you felt the last time you sang it and so you begin to feel that feeling again. And we're built that way. And so it's a dangerous thing. I'm going off my notes right now for a moment. When I was a little kid, my dad chewed precisely one flavor of gum, Wrigley's Spearmint. He always had it with him. He had some in his pocket. He had some in the car. He had some in his uh, pants pocket. You could find it everywhere. That was his one flavor. And every time we got in the car, he'd rip off a half a piece. I, he was really cheap, so he only did a half. And he'd throw it in his mouth, and you'd fill up the whole car with that smell. To this day, if I smell Wrigley Spearmint gum, I miss my dad. Because we're built for association. So back to the scenario of tears streaming down our faces as we're singing a ridiculously heretical song. The next time it comes up and the next time it comes up, it begins to make you feel that emotion again. And then some pastor gets up and says, that song is heretical and here's 50 reasons why. And what do we do? We get mad. You get mad because I just ripped away from you something that felt good. It's like taking a pacifier from a five-year-old. It's like, it's time to get rid of that thing. It's coming out. So that's why this is, this is, why this is so important. Truth must drive our worship. So what I want to do is just pour some concrete here and give you, first of all, um, some foundation. Let's do a, a definition, some definitions here. And we're starting broad, and then we'll get more specific. <clears throat> Worship is all that we are, reacting rightly to all that God is. That is a tremendous definition. Um, That's a definition that uh, MacArthur gave in his book, uh, Worship the Ultimate Priority. Let's talk about this definition for a minute. Worship is all that we are. Well, that destroys the idea that music is just an emotional response you have to really good music. Uh, which, by the way, side note, if you're in the church with lousy musicians, can you worship? It's harder, but you can. So worship is all that we are. It's not just when we come to church. It's everything we are. So we start broad, reacting rightly to all that God is. Okay, this is a huge landmine. All that God is. How do you know everything we can know about God? You must know his word. You must be familiar with Genesis to Revelation. You must know what, what God's attributes are. You must continue in your journey to know God. If you're not being taught, if you're not being led, if you're not being uh, studious and, and taking in what Scripture says about God, then, according to this definition, can you react rightly? No. And if you can't react rightly, what are you not doing? You're not worshiping. You're not worshiping. <clears throat> I've seen, and, and I've, I've been around charismatic circles a lot, and I've seen, there's a, there's a phrase that charismatics like to use, and it's sort of a, a, a stock phrase that they use. 
they say that the Holy Spirit is like a gentleman. He'll never force himself on somebody. He'll just simply wait for a response. And of course, that leads to, uh, so now you should pray for the Holy Spirit and pray for the Spirit of God to do things in your life and to, uh, to make you have experiences and that sort of thing. Well, what does that lead to? You now have what is essentially a blasphemous view of the Holy Spirit because John chapter 3, Jesus said that the Spirit of God does what he wishes, when he wishes, with whom he wishes, and how he wishes. It's a blasphemous view, therefore you cannot worship properly. And now, who's in the driver's seat of what God's going to do? We are. And so you see how wrong theology leads you to have an inability to worship God properly. It's another definition by Alan Ross. Worship is a response to the revelation of the Holy Lord God of glory. I like this one. It's a response to the revelation. What does that mean? It means that true worship is based in your knowledge of the word. And understanding of the word. Now, you, you might say, well, that's not very nice. A brand new believer doesn't know anything about Christ. Yeah, they do. They know that the cross saved them. And so a new believer can say, I don't know much about Genesis through Revelation, but I know that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. I, I don't know about you, but in the book of Revelation, I would find that that alone is enough knowledge to worship for all eternity. So it's based on knowledge. It's a response to the revelation. Then you begin to see Christ in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, plural, God, created the heavens and the earth. And then you go all the way to Revelation, second to last verse, surely I am coming soon. And as you see Christ more and more through Scripture, then your response to Revelation just goes up and up and up. It's another definition here. Another one by Alan Ross. This is a little longer. And I I don't think I had that one up there. That's okay. You can just listen to this. True worship is the celebration of being in covenant fellowship with the sovereign and holy triune God by means of the reverent adoration and spontaneous praise of God's nature and works, the expressed commitment of trust and obedience to the covenant responsibilities and the memorial reenactment of entering into covenant through ritual acts, the Lord's Supper and baptism, all with the confident anticipation of the fulfillment of covenant promises in glory. Does that sound complicated? Yes, because worship is not merely feeling something and feeling good. Uh, I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I can't remember which time, we've been to the, the Gettys uh, Sing Conference a couple times, and uh, there was, they did a special event uh, that was in the Grand Old Opry. It was a hymn sing, and it was fabulous. Um, 4,000 people in there, however many at seats, singing these hymns together. Amazing. And there were, there were a lot of Baptists there, so they were singing in four-part harmony. It was fabulous. So <clears throat> the two guys in front of me in our family, they're doing, I don't know how to do this, they're doing some sort of live, uh, live broadcast on either Facebook or, or Twitter. And so they got their phones up. First of all, that was annoying because I couldn't see the words, so we're doing this the whole time. And they're, they're texting once in a while, you know, putting some comments in there. And the song would start. And literally, they're looking at their phone. The song starts, hands go up. And you just go, really? I, the, the, the sinner in me wanted to just go, and hit that hand. Like, that was, a, that was a conditioned response. That wasn't worship. And besides that, we're singing truth, and you're sitting there with your stupid phone. 
I, I want once a year to get to smash a phone in a worship service just to make the point. So it's a response to revelation. It's not just a gathering where you, you feel something. I, I mean, you can do that anywhere. Let's continue the response idea. The response to revelation. What kind of revelation? Well, we'll divide this into two pieces. The revealed holiness of God. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, we see the vision of the glory of God and the angels in heaven saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We respond to His holiness. How is the wrong man-centered goal of gathering together so that you can feel something, how is that responding to holiness? That has nothing to do with the holiness of God. When you think about the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, what was Isaiah's response? Does anybody remember? What, was, he, uh, was he jumping up and down and, and smiling? Say it again. He fell on his face. He was terrified. He said, woe is me. He thought he was about to die because he saw the holiness of God. And in fact, the angel came and touched his lips. It was a symbol of forgiveness. How is it that Isaiah could see and worship the holiness of God? It was only by being forgiven. So we worship in response to the revealed holiness of God. Revelation 4 verse 8. Four living creatures exclaiming the holiness of God. And according to both the Old and the New Testament, that never stops. At this moment, Angels in heaven are crying out to one another in antiphonal praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. Who is and who was and who is to come. And that continues every moment. And then it's a response to the revealed glory of God. The glory of God is His most visible manifestation of the presence of God. His glory is the evidence of of his preeminence. Isaiah 6 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. Psalm 19 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Exodus 33 18, Moses prayed, Show me your glory. By the way, Moses prayed, Show me your glory, after having personally performed miracles, seen ten plagues, and been part of the Red Sea parting. And yet his hunger for God was such that he said, Show me your glory. I'd pay every dime I have to see the Red Sea. I'm really hoping there's a video playback in heaven. I I want to see that. And yet he said, show me your glory. So worship is a response to revelation. Okay, let's do a little little biblical history then. And I'm, I'm going slow on purpose. I want these truths to kind of sink into your heart. Let's talk about worship before Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is when Moses uh, receives the, the covenant for Israel. So let's go before Mount Sinai. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve enjoyed immediate access to God. They walked with him. They communed with him in the Garden of Eden. The text doesn't say this, but there's reasonable evidence that they saw a manifestation of God. We would call him the angel of the Lord. Why wouldn't they? There's sinless perfection. Why wouldn't God appear to them in human form? After the fall into sin, now immediate access is no longer available. And from here on out, we have to have mediated access. We have to have 
uh, the means to access and worship God, there has to be now a mediation. There has to be an intermediary. There has to be a process. Can you imagine that in the Garden of Eden, any time they wanted, Adam and Eve could just say, God, and they would commune with him. You can imagine that. You want to know why? Because you're enjoying mediated access where you may say God and you enjoy his presence. But it's still mediated. How do you know? Because you've never seen him. You've never seen him once. We pray through Christ to the Father. So now, Adam and Eve, they had to have a mediation. And so they had a sacrifice of animals. God sacrificed animals to cover their bodies because now their nakedness represented their sin. And the animals served as a substitute for their immediate death. Adam and Eve, by the way, were shown the cost of sin, death through the shedding of blood. Genesis 3 doesn't tell us how God killed these animals. I don't think that animals were just walking in front of Adam and Eve and just suddenly dropped dead. It says, the text says that God clothed them. God killed the animals. And so my, my um, assumption would be that the physical manifestation of God came and physically killed these animals. I don't know for sure, but one thing we do know is that Adam and Eve witnessed the first death. They were told that if they sinned, they would die. And yet they didn't. Why? Because God provided mediation. He provided a sacrifice for them. Then you have Abel. Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted? Well, it was accepted because it was by faith. Hebrews 11.4 tells us this. That Abel sacrificed by faith. He went out of his way to please God while his brother Cain was performing a religious duty without faith. Uh, there's a lot of theories about why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Cain brought the fruit of the ground. He brought things that he grew. I think the best answer is that Abel understood that there had to be blood. The wages of sin is death, not grapes. And so Cain had no faith. Abel had faith. So now we understand that mediated access to God must be accompanied by what? By faith. That you, you don't come to God by simply saying, hey, it's a good thing there was a sacrifice made on my behalf. Couldn't care less about God. Have no faith in him. Not even sure he exists. But just in case he does, it's a good thing mediated, mediated access was provided. That's not the case. There has to be faith. Then we go on and think about Noah. After the flood, Noah built an altar and he sacrificed to God. What was the sacrifice for? It was an expression of gratitude for God's mercy, his power, and it was also an expression of Noah's submission to God's will. The one guy on planet Earth who got in a giant, giant vehicle um, built to hold thousands. The, The ark was as big as a cruise ship. And yet eight people got on it. And so Noah built an altar, sacrificed to God. So sacrifice, we're already seeing, is connected to worship, big time. It's, it's part and parcel of worship. How about Abraham? We're still worshiped before Mount Sinai. Abram built an altar to God, Genesis twelve seven. This was a response to what? To God's revelation to him. Re- Genesis chapter 12, God 
gives the Abrahamic covenant. He calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He gives him his promises. He promises to make him a great nation, to bless uh, people, uh, his people, to that all who bless him will be blessed, all who curse him will be cursed. He makes these promises, this revelation. And what does Abraham do in response to revelation? See also Alan Ross, he worships. He builds an altar to sacrifice It was an expression of gratitude and devotion to God for calling Abram. I just put it in terms today we can understand. This isn't going to happen because we have a Bible. But if you you, uh, were walking down the street and you turned a corner and suddenly God himself appeared to you and spoke to you in all of his glory and then disappeared, would you say, that was interesting and keep walking? No, of course not. What would your response be? You would be on your knees. You would be on your face. You would be responding. Abraham also worshiped with the almost sacrifice of Isaac. Genesis 22. Abraham obeyed in his heart, not just outwardly. He obeyed in his heart as demonstrated by his willingness. And he demonstrated that worship involves completely relinquishing himself and submitting fully to God alone. John MacArthur calls the almost sacrifice of Isaac, the most anguish-filled moment of the Bible except for the cross. I, I can't even possibly imagine. And yet, God required this of, of Abraham and he did it, or he attempted to. Then you have Moses. This is still before Sinai. The revelation of God in the burning bush caused Moses to respond in humble worship. Exodus 3, 5, that, that was his response. He worshiped. When Moses demonstrated God's power to Israel and God's intent to save them, they responded in worship. Exodus four thirty one. Israel's leaders worshiped because of the revelation of God. And then now you begin to get to something we're a little more familiar with, and that is Passover. Passover was a rejoicing of deliverance from bondage. And what's central to Passover? It is what? Sacrifice. There has to be the sacrifice of a lamb. In order to worship God, you had to have sacrifice. And now you start to feel this familiarity because we know that this prefigured Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now you start to put the puzzle pieces together. I think in American evangelicalism, there's such a disconnect um, between Old Testament and New Testament that we don't understand the continuities. Um, it's not all all continuity. Um, we, nobody here has brought a lamb. We're not going to slaughter a lamb up here this morning. But there is much more continuity than there is discontinuity. So that's before Mount Sinai. So what are some of the features that, that we saw um, that are common to worship before Mount Sinai? Just, just throw them out. What are some of the things that are common? Faith. Say that again. Faith. Faith is common. What else? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. I think that's pretty much it, right? Blood and faith. Submission, yeah, and that's a, that is part and parcel of faith. You cannot be submitted to God um, without faith and vice versa. So now let's uh, fast forward. Now Israel receives the covenant from God. They sign on the dotted line, uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, the people say, yes, we will do this. They sign the covenant, so to speak. So now you have worship after Mount Sinai. We'll, we'll do this and then kind of finish up and and uh, get to things that are more uh, for us in the New Testament next time. You have the tabernacle and the temple. 
now there becomes more of a centralized location to worship God. The tabernacle and the temple. The purpose of the tabernacle is to give a very clear reality of the presence of God with Israel. And we've said this before, but the, the, uh, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple, um, especially the Ark of the Covenant, served as the throne of God on earth. Many places in the Bible where you see the throne of God mentioned, you also have cherubim, that class of angels mentioned as well. They're there. And that's the case in the tabernacle as well. So what is the purpose of the tabernacle? Now, here's, a, here's an irony for you. The purpose of the tabernacle, the temple, is to reveal God's holiness and to conceal God's holiness. Both. God's holiness is revealed in that he has picked a physical spot on planet Earth to place his presence. It doesn't mean he's not everywhere else. It's just the official place. And yet at the same time, he is concealed. Once a year when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice uh, on the Day of Atonement onto the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the tradition was that they tie the rope around his ankle. Because he was going to be in the presence of the glory of God. And if he did something wrong and dropped dead, they had to be able to get him out. Access was carefully governed by an outer court, a holy place, and a most holy place. Now, we can understand this as well. The tabernacle and the temple... um, help us begin to work through what does it mean for God to have a place on earth. Abraham and Moses and Abel and Noah didn't have a lot of understanding of that necessarily. Adam and Eve did because they lived for a while before the fall. But they didn't have an understanding. God was uh, amorphous and ethereal and they built an altar wherever they were. But now with the tabernacle and temple, there is this revealed and concealed access to God. An Israelite could look literally as they're traveling for 40 years in the wilderness, they could look right over there and see the manifest glory of God over the tabernacle. And they could with, with great comfort say, there's God. What does that prepare us for? It prepares us for the ultimate fulfillment of God placing himself on the earth. And who is that? That is the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. Now, you don't need a tent, don't need a temple. Jesus is the word became flesh in fact, uh, John 2.19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What was he referring to? He's referring to his own body, the real temple, the real place where we worship. So, from Mount Sinai on, now you have a, a, a place. And by the way, we still hold to this pattern. I love being on a hillside by myself in a field of flowers and worshiping God there. But what do we associate the presence of God with mostly when God's people are gathered together in one place? That's what we associate with the presence of God, and rightly so. Okay, let's do one more thing here. We've already alluded to this, but I I want to lay this foundation as as, um, carefully as we can, and that is the fact that worship requires sacrifice. Worship requires sacrifice. And then we're going to apply this in a couple of ways, and then we'll be done for today. 
Sacrifice is at the center of worship. It's at the center of worship. It's the basis for worship. It is the expression of worship. Did you catch that? It is the basis of worship and it's the expression of worship. Um, Why why is it the basis for worship? Well, sacrifice is the basis because worship is halted by the sin of humanity. You can't worship God in your sinful state. I, I I know that there's a misconception that if I go to a building that's called a church and I sing songs that I'm worshiping, um, but worship is only worship if God receives it and accepts it. And how does he receive and accept it? It is based on sacrifice. People are unholy, they're impure, they're unclean before holy God, so you have to have sacrifice. One of my professors in seminary he wrote a terrific article called Worthy is the Lamb that was Slain, was Andrew Snyder, and he wrote this. Leviticus presents the pattern that God established in order to facilitate holiness and remove impurity from his treasured people so that they might dwell with him in covenant fellowship. For the people to commune with God, atonement for their sin must be achieved. Atonement was accomplished by means of sacrifices which were, when offered from a heart of faith, acts of worship. Now, let me put this on a human level. If you're married, and guys, you... Uh, come home and you snap at your wife all evening long and you're mean and you're rude and you're just terrible to be around. And then you suddenly say, hey, let's, let's go out on a date. What's your wife rightly going to do? She's going to say, not until we talk because the relationship must be restored. You can't say, oh, I'm going to come sing songs to God. I'm going to come worship him um, when there's unconfessed sin. You can't do that when you've been willfully sinning against God and not being mindful of that, not being humble about that. And so there must be sacrifice. What is the sacrifice that, that we claim? Of course, it's the sacrifice of Christ. And you'll notice um, that generally speaking, especially in our morning worship service, we try to begin with what? With confession. So that we might worship and, and be reminded that it's on the basis of the cross alone that we appear before God. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, it's not as big now, but it's still out there. There was a, a theological system, and I've preached on this, easy believism or uh, free grace, sometimes what it's called, that has a very, very staunch belief that once you've gotten saved, you should never confess sin to God again. Because you're trying to get saved over and over again. That you never have to say sorry for anything. Does that work even in human relationships? The day of your wedding, my vow is, I am sorry for everything I've ever done and you will never hear the words I'm sorry again because I know you'll accept me no matter what. What should that woman do? She should walk away at that moment. If that doesn't work in human relationships, how much less in our relationship with God? No, we come because of sacrifice and the sacrifice of Christ. Do we have to be saved over and over again? Of course not. But our relationship needs to be pure. I mean, in the Old Testament, um, you were saved by faith, just like we are now. And yet you were commanded before you appeared before God, you washed your clothes, you washed your face, you cleaned your body, and you came as clean as you could. The Old Testament sacrificial system is related to worship. As we, we taught through Leviticus a number of months ago, you saw that purity and holiness was a paramount concern to God. 
that we come before him in purity. The worshiper came as a sinner in need of acceptance by God. God is the one that grants the effectiveness of the sacrifice. Did you catch that? God is the one who grants the effectiveness of the sacrifice. He gets to define what the sacrifice is. So when somebody says, I'm going to give $10,000 to the church so that God might look on me favorably, that's not the sacrifice he asked for. The wages of sin is not $10,000. The wages of sin is what? Death. And it must be the death of a perfect human being who it can only be perfect because he's God. And so he alone defines the sacrifice. You remember in the Old Testament, you couldn't bring you know, that, that gnarly old goat that was limping on three legs. You know, hey, I'm going to sacrifice this thing. It's not worth anything anyway. No, God said, you bring the best. He alone defines the sacrifice. We don't get to do that. The offering was consisted of that which was costly to the worshiper. Now, this is something that we'll talk about next time. But just because Christ made a sacrifice for us doesn't mean we don't make sacrifices. Should it cost you nothing to worship God? Yes, we can say, well, it costs Christ everything, but you wouldn't even go to a restaurant and demand free food. And yet sometimes we go to church and demand free worship. That's why we bring a sacrifice. This whole COVID thing where we stop passing the plate has driven me nuts, to be quite honest with you, because we need that physical act of putting something in God's hands, so to speak. And you know, praise God for online giving. You guys have given more than I've ever seen in my life. And we are thankful for that. So what do you do when you're hitting that submit button? <laughs> Stop for a moment and just say, God, this is, this is my sacrifice to you. It costs me to worship you. Not costs for our salvation, but it does cost to worship. The offering consisted of that which was costly to the worshiper and the worshiper came to commune with God in covenant fellowship. So I want to kind of stop there and um, I want to just apply this. Our culture and American evangelicalism has a misconception about worship that is so dangerous that from a human standpoint, people will go to hell because of this. Now, I'm not denying the doctrine of election. I'm not denying that God chooses those who will be saved. Not denying the doctrine of regeneration. Just think from a human standpoint for a moment. When a church defines salvation as a process, now you get in trouble. Because now the strategy, so to speak, of a church that is built on the idea of growing and that more people is better than fewer people and so forth, their strategy now is to provide quote-unquote worship that unbelievers enjoy. And so you see, you can see this on church websites. Um, come enjoy our worship. Okay, let's go back 3,500 years. You're taking the best of your lambs. You only have five of them and you're taking one of them. And you're taking the best of your lambs. And the priest stands before you and says, put your head on the lamb. And you put your head on this lamb and he hands you a knife. And you put your arm around that lamb and you lift his head up and you slit its throat. Would the website for the tabernacle say, come enjoy our worship? No. When the strategy of the church is to tell unbelievers to come enjoy the music 
so to speak. Or for example, come enjoy a relevant message, meaning the Bible is too dusty to understand. When you have done that, what you have now done is convinced unregenerate people that they may worship God. And churches always say, well, that's just part of our process. Problem is they never finish that process. They never get to the point of saying, how many of you here have been here for three months? And people raise their hands. Okay, let me tell you the truth now. You're going to hell. They never say that. They never get to that point. And now you have churches with thousands and thousands and thousands of unregenerate people believing they're worshiping God because they're having an emotional experience. Listen, I can go hear the, a, a Philharmonic, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, incredible symphony, and I have an emotional experience. Tears come to my eyes because of the beauty of that music. That doesn't mean I'm worshiping God. It just means it's really good. So the problem with not understanding that worship requires sacrifice is just to put it bluntly, unbelievers are incapable of worship. They're incapable of it. As a matter of fact, I could make the case from Scripture that unbelievers trying to worship makes God very angry. What does he say multiple times in the Old Testament? Stop bringing me your sacrifices. Stop celebrating the festivals. Why is he saying that when it's the law? He says that because you don't mean it. There's no faith behind it. You're just doing externals. Quit it. He says, I don't want it. Because it doesn't mean anything to him. So it's imperative for you to understand when you bring your unbelieving friends to church, don't tell them, come worship with me. Tell them, come be with people who are worshiping God. There's a slight difference. Look, if you get them here one way or another, that's fine. We'll preach the gospel to them. But this is, a, this is a huge concern in the church. When a church explodes with growth because they're entertaining people and they've hired musicians uh, that are, are fabulous, and I'm all for fabulous music, we want that, but to make you feel entertained and the music's so loud you can't even hear yourself think, much less sing, What is that? That is convincing unbelievers that they are worshiping. You know what Jesus would say to that? It would be better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you be thrown into the sea than you lead one of these little ones astray. Don't convince an unbeliever they're worshiping. Convince an unbeliever they're incapable of it. And then offer them the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except, comes to the Father except through me. Would you like to come to the Father? Would you like to be a worshiper? So I want to I drive that home because that is such a huge misconception in the church today that you get enough talented musicians up on a platform and you're worshiping. And that's not true. True story, and then we'll finish with this. I'll finish with this. A number of years ago, I was briefly involved with a ministry and um, it didn't go well because their theology was so completely different. And there was a young lady leading music worship from the piano, singing. She had a mediocre voice. That's okay. She was pretty talented on the piano. Um, she had been doing this since she was 12, 13 years old. And everybody in the church loved her. And every Sunday she got to the piano and she started talking about her feelings and how her week went. Oh, my week was so bad, but we're going to trust God. I'm feeling terrible, but we'll get through this together. You are like, this isn't your therapy session. This is the worship of the living God. And so I made the mistake in this ministry that I was a part of, of challenging this and saying this is not right on so many levels. <clears throat> and this young lady 
who was supposed to be leading us in the worship of God, literally threw herself on the ground, crying and screaming and having a fit. And guess who got yelled at? Me. (laughs) Okay, I kept my mouth shut. Because sentiment, feeling, emotion, tradition, all of that trumped what? Truth. Can't have that. So, can unbelievers worship? One more time. Can unbelievers worship? No. Do they have the availability to worship? Yes. Come to Christ and be a worshiper. So, there's our first part. We've got three minutes. Do you have any questions? Uh, lots of questions. Yeah, David. How does fasting fit into sacrifice and worship and Fasting. Every time you ask a question, it's a monumental theological. I love that. Okay, there's one fasting day proclaimed in the Old Testament. That is the Day of Atonement. And in that case, fasting is associated with grief over your sin. In the New Testament, fasting is not commanded, but it is assumed. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, don't do this and that. Don't, look, don't walk around looking all drab and dreary. Um, fasting and prayer go together. And so there's a great freedom there. There's not a command to fast, but there's an assumption that there are times in your life where that will be usual. I know some who fast one day a week just to be a little extra time of prayer. Others, when they're having a huge crisis in their lives, um, they, they fast until they sense some peace from the Lord. So um, that, that's more of a personal, personal thing. That's not something we do together. Um, now, I have been a part of groups that say we agree together that on a certain two days we're all going to fast and pray for one thing. That's a great thing to do too. So, good question. What else? All right, I I know this is like flying at 35,000 feet and I understand that. We'll get to more nitty gritty next time. So, let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can worship. The cross of Christ is empty He is no longer on it, and yet it still has the stains of his blood. And we thank you for the sacrifice made on our behalf that we might appear before you, that people of every tribe and tongue and nation might sing your praises for all time. And this very day, the Lord's day, we are able to gather because of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to be true worshipers, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for your attentiveness. I really appreciate it.